Do you feel politically homeless, lost in the chaos of modern politics, not sure who to believe? Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Democrats call him a Republican. Republicans call him a socialist. He is Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle. Welcome to the Man in the Middle podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. I'm Stephen Reynolds, your host, recording today from the historic WGNS studios located in the heart of the great volunteer state, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, folks, that's right, back in the studio today. And first thing that I would like to say before we get the show started is I would like to say thanks to the WGNS family and in particular to my producer, Dalton Barrett, for following the guidelines and making um, the studio a safe place to come. We are going to continue with our podcast uh, remotely for our guest, uh, but I'm going to be coming into the studio now. We do have a few, obviously, the folks that do the shows here in and out, uh, but um, anyway, we're definitely practicing the social distancing here in Murfreesboro. You know, folks, we hear a lot about government overreach, and uh, that's a big topic out there today, is is asking you to wear a mask in public government overreach. Some people would say yes, and some people would say no, but there's definitely examples of things that I think we can all agree on government overreach, and that starts down in Waco, Texas, folks. We're gonna, today's guest is going to take you back to Waco, and we're going to talk about that. Um, the new Netflix series is out, a documentary on Waco. I found it, watched it again, found it very interesting. And so we hope uh, to show you a side of Waco that you haven't seen before. Uh, our guest will. And uh, then we're going to talk a little politics about the Republican Party and the future of the Republican Party. So thanks for joining us again. This is episode eight of season two. I'm Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle, and we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast, Season 2. Joining me today is a former Republican candidate for United States House of Representatives, Mr. Steve Lane. Steve, welcome to the Man in the Middle. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Steve. I I wanted to do a show uh, recently. um, uh, Netflix came out with a new documentary on the Waco uh, situation that happened 30 years ago and um, I found out that you had uh, some knowledge and and a lot of education about everything that happened at Waco and so I want to talk about that in government overreach but first Steve can you give our our listeners a little bit of background and and tell folks about yourself where you're from what you do all of that type of stuff sure uh, I'm originally from Indianapolis Indiana uh, I was uh, adopted into a family of six of us total. Dad was a truck driver. Mom was a stay-at-home mom and uh, did that from ages zero through 18 and then joined the Air Force uh, and ended up stationed in Abilene, Texas, which we always used to say it wasn't the end of the world, but you could see it from there. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Texas desert not not a whole lot to look at in retrospect it's it's a pretty beautiful place uh but uh and then did that for a few years and then ended up down in uh, corpus christi texas uh, or corpus as we call it in texas and um and then about uh, right before y2k i moved uh to tennessee and, and really back to my family roots my dad's from southern southern kentucky just across the state line in uh, allen county kentucky and and a lot of family in and around tennessee and and, and actually, the the first uh, the very first Baptist church that was ever planted in Tennessee was planted by Elaine. So uh, uh, I don't know that I'm distantly related to him, but nobody else can prove that I can't. So I lay claim to him. 
<laughs> I understand. I understand. Well, Steve, I know that, that you and I probably have uh, some different opinions on how the government should approach things and, and the politics of, of this country that's going on. But I think that you and I probably ag- agree on a lot more uh, that we than, than we disagree on. But I think one of the things, I want to jump right into Waco and talk about the Branch Davidians and talk about the government overreach uh, that happened there. You know, no matter what side of the fence you're on, uh, what happened at Waco 30 years ago was just a very bad look for the U.S. government. Steve, tell us your experience with the Branch Davidians and uh, just give us an, uh, the general story of your of what you have done and the things that you know about what happened at Waco. Uh, sure. I, I don't know of I don't know any of the people that uh, died uh, at Waco. I only know a handful of the survivors. And the way that came about was in the in 93, when that first went down, I, like I said, I was living in Corpus and I was refueling airplanes, uh, Corpus Christi International Airport. And I think uh, I consider myself like a lot of people at the time. I sort of watched it on CNN or, you know, different news broadcasts and and at the time, I got to tell you, I thought to myself, well, those people, they should have come out. You know, you're supposed to do what the police tell you to do. And, and they weren't doing it. And shame on them. They sort of got what was coming to them. You know, I mean, that's kind of wasn't that harsh, but that's kind of how I thought about it at the time. Um, and then fast forward a few years, um, I had uh, I know this sounds crazy, but I actually had uh, developed a friendship with the guy. Some of your listeners probably know named Alex Jones. Uh, he and I actually used to do some access TV together. In Austin, Texas, I had met him at a public event, and uh, he's a very different guy back then than he is now, uh, or at least as I know of him now. We we don't stay in touch the way quite the way we used to, and um, in the course of doing that, I met some of the surviving Davidians at uh, it was an event called the Downsized Government Conference. It used to be hosted once a month, and actually I ended up being one of the uh, people that helped put it on uh, after a while, and so. Uh, I met some of them and I was struck by how different they were than what the news media told me they were. (laughs) So I I had been led to believe that they were these crazy wild eyed religious zealots and banging their fists on table and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I'm telling you, you couldn't pick them out of a room. I mean, they were no different than anybody else. And so that sort of started um, a... uh, an eye-opening, uh, an awakening, if you will, of that maybe the media doesn't always portray things as accurately as, as they can and should. Uh, and a lot of that, at least at that time, had more to do with how the, uh, the federal government was portraying them to the media. So the media was just sort of turning around and reporting what, what they were being told. Right. But at any rate, um, then I got an opportunity to meet uh, and have lunch with a guy named Dale Littleton who uh, he was the lead ATF agent in that area. He actually led that initial raid on Waco. And uh, through a mutual friend, we were introduced and uh, ate lunch with him. And then that was a real, that was a real eye opener because uh, I I, kind of thought at that time that uh, I was going to have lunch with this guy and he was going to set my worldview back to where it was, you know, and and, because that would give me, I think some more comfort in a lot of ways at that time. Uh, but instead, uh, it turned out, at least in my mind, he was the the religious zealot. He kept bringing the conversation back around to his Baptist faith and how the, the what the Branch Davidians, the type of religion they were practicing was wrong. And, and he really just sort of walked up to that line, Steve, of, of almost saying that that he was almost there on a mission from God to, to make those things right. And, and to be clear, he didn't say that, but well, he came really close. That was the impression and, uh, that you got, huh? And and so this ab- this was the guy absolutely. that that on and and so let's jog folks' memory a little bit. If you remember, there were two separate incidences that happened at Waco. The very first one was a raid by the ATF. I don't believe the FBI was involved at that point, uh, but a Correct. raid by the ATF. And so this this gentleman you met was the guy that was leading that raid. Correct. And if you remember the old videos, uh, most of the videos of that attack are kind of burned in people's memories. There was a cattle trailer that those guys used to to uh, transport them out to the to the Mount Carmel site. And then they piled out of that cattle trailer and 
and and uh, and then attack the the building. Right. Uh, well, that was Dale's cattle trailer, and that was his pickup truck pulling no the uh, the cattle trailer. Right, and and you know, as I understand it, the bullets started flying pretty quickly. I mean, these guys jumped out, and and did they serve the warrant, Steve, or did they try to serve the warrant? Is that what they were there for? Uh, so they were there to serve a warrant uh, for some uh, weapons violations, and uh, your listeners are going to have to forgive me. I don't remember the specifics, but it had to do with parts, components of uh, rifles that would allow you to convert semi-automatic rifles to automatic rifles, as I recall. Um, and so uh, I don't believe that warrant ever got served by the ATF. I think most people, there's a lot of different versions sort of of you know, who shot first kind of thing. But after all the sort of years of evidence and and things sort of started trickling out, I think most people settled on and even the Fed settled on that, um, that a couple of the ATF agents had shot some of the dogs, which sadly seems to be sort of commonplace with law enforcement. Uh, But, um, and then that, shots ringing out then that triggered more shots and then things just got out of hand very quickly right and then obviously we had the long standoff and the negotiations that went on and then of course the terrible tragedy steve you were really touched by the survivors of the branch davidian compound there can you talk about a little bit about uh, those folks i mean basically they lost everyone the entire world thought that they were probably crazy to your point because of how they'd been portrayed in the media can you talk a little bit about the survivors of of the waco compound and that terrible day correct uh so what i like to do is if you want to put it in sort of today's context with everything with covid19 going on imagine god forbid you lose a loved one uh to covid19 there's a you'd probably get to go home and start the grieving process you'd probably have your church if you're a person of faith uh, or your synagogue or, or whatnot to be able to, to, to help deal with your grief in that way. You'd have friends, you'd have family. Well, what always touched me was, as I got to know some of the survivors, is they lost all that in one fell swoop. Yeah, I they mean, lost there was everyone. only nine. Yeah. Yeah, there was only nine survivors from the final day. So if you can imagine, you know, they, they lost their home, they lost their church, they lost their loved ones. It happened to them all at once. And yet, um, their faith is undaunted. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, they're an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, there's this misconception out there that they think David Koresh was Jesus Christ. That was completely false. That's not what they think at all. Um, but I, I was touched by that. And so I had told one of the survivors, Clive Doyle, uh, if, to put Clive Doyle in perspective, uh, for those of your listeners that are people of faith, you know, we probably shouldn't have our favorite deacon in the church, but I think there's always a favorite deacon in the church. Sure. You know, it's just yeah. kind of that one that's just kind of the go-to guy and people just really have. Well, that was Clive Doyle or is Clive Doyle. He's just that kind of go-to guy for them. And um, and so I told him, I said, you know, if you ever get an opportunity to rebuild, I want to be a part of it because I, I build for a living. And so uh, that was, I don't know, somewhere in the in the mid nineties, if, if memory serves me correctly. And then, uh, um, so, uh, then if you remember, uh, the, the feds had always, uh, claimed that, um, that they did not use any incendiary devices in the raids. Right. Uh, and then there was a Academy award nominated documentary filmmaker named Michael McNulty. And he had produced a documentary on Waco that got you know, that's the one that got nominated and he was continuing his research and he was in one of these big government warehouses. I always joke, it's probably like the one at the end of Indiana Jones, you know, where right, top men are working on it. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Where they hid the Ark of the Covenant. I think it was, I think it was a couple rows over from the Ark. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> um, he found some spent flashbang grenades and that, that was sort of the beginning of what I felt like was a sea change in the perception that the general public had towards the Davidian. So, so right away, uh, I put in a call to Alex and, uh, our producer and said, Hey, let's, let's go to Waco and let's rebuild these folks, a new, uh, sanctuary. So we set about doing that. And so, so the, the surviving Davidians, they actually have a Facebook page, uh, um, that, uh, it is a, uh, it's a private page, um, but there's probably a little over a thousand people on it now because, uh, because of the interest in the Waco miniseries on Netflix. And it's 
it is fascinating, Steve, because these folks uh, put themselves out there and they answer questions of the general public. Um, there's one of the FBI negotiators uh, that was on, uh, that was part of the negotiation process. He's on that Facebook page answering questions. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing, wonderful thing to see people come together and, and uh, try and analyze what happened in the hopes that, that something like that would, would never happen again. Right. And, and that's great to hear that there is healing that is going on and that there are members of the community that are interested in helping folks. Um, you know, obviously, they've reintegrated back into society uh, or what, you know, from from very little that they had left. Steve, this is you mentioned us learning something from the Waco incident. And, and did the federal government learn? Did we learn how to handle these types of standoff hostage types of situations better did we improve the playbook what's your assessment of what we took away from from this tragedy at waco you know i can't i can't really speak to the details of how things are done now i can speak a little bit to what happened then uh and it in it by the way um the waco miniseries on uh netflix uh in case your listeners are wondering by the surviving Davidians, it's considered to be sort of the most accurate portrayal. I mean, it's got some Hollywood to it. Don't misunderstand me. But they they generally consider, consider it to be a very balanced uh, portrayal of what happened there. It was uh, based on two books, one from the lead FBI negotiator, Gary uh, uh, Nort. Oh, I can't think of his last name. Forgive me for not thinking of it. It's okay. Uh, and, and then a friend of mine, David Thibodeau, uh, he's one of the main characters uh, in the in the film and he also wrote a book on his perspective of what happened and he he was one of the survivors from the fire one of the nine that came out on the final day and um so at any rate um that um that portrayal is generally considered to be balanced and and what you've noticed that plays out in that documentary or excuse me in that uh, miniseries is that there was this great divide between the fbi negotiators and the FBI hostage rescue team. Right. And uh, the HRT, I, I I don't think I can overstate it to say that these are, you know, the. <laughs> I think sometimes there's a stereotype out there of some gung ho, you know, muscle bound kind of cops kind of thing, sort of at the local level and the sheriff's departments and things like that. Sure. Well, if you can imagine that taken to a whole nother level. And a whole nother level of spending and training at the federal level right yeah so so these guys are pretty they're pretty jacked up guys you know mm -hmm, and so uh and and you know there's a lot of instances where they really need to be i don't i don't mean to to be overly critical of that but there was definitely a divide between those two so there was almost two simultaneous approaches going on to dealing with the standoff you had the hrt that's ready to just storm the place and and itching to do it and every doing everything they can to to sort of create that environment where they could be doing it and then you had these uh fbi negotiators they're doing the exact opposite they they sort of rate themselves on on peaceful endings as well they should right and i don't know if that's ever been resolved or not i can't really speak to that but i know that was definitely what was going on at the time yeah well that's that's a great you know i would hope that obviously like we said in the beginning this is a bad look no matter what side of the political aisle you're on or how you view politics this is just a bad look we hear a lot today about religious persecution but you know when there are tanks outside of your uh, uh, outside of your house that's a whole nother level of religious persecution uh that you know folks could say was going on there Steve, I think the closest thing to this that I can recall would be the Clive uh, Clive and Bundy incident out in Nevada um, that ended differently. We still lost an innocent human being in that uh, situation, but do you think that, I hope that the federal government learned from this. Do you think that they applied what they learned? I mean, they stood down in Nevada, is that right? Uh, that's my memory of it, and I and I just wanted to make clear I I don't have the detailed knowledge of that incident the, sure. the way I do more of the Davidians incident. Um, sure. So I, I really sort of what I know I just sort of gleaned from headlines and pers- first paragraph readings of articles about it. But yeah, that's my memory of it is that 
Uh, and so I, I, I remember thinking at the time, it's funny you asked this question. I do remember thinking at the time of the Bundy incident, I was like, well, this is different, you know, because they, they did let them occupy uh, that uh, federal building and uh, they did just sort of let everybody stand down and yes. uh, to in large part. And so, so my very uh, sort of distant uh, observation of that is that, yeah, that was handled uh, quite a bit differently than it was handled with the Davidians. Yeah, well, you know, kind of back to your point, I have no doubt that there were a lot of guys on the front lines of that that were disappointed when the attorney general told them to stand down this second time. But I'm hoping it's because they learned a lesson from Waco is what I really hope. And uh, God forbid this ever happens again. Steve, but what if it does with the president we currently have in office now? What, what, uh, what would you expect to see out of President Trump if we had the same type of situation? Do we even know? Can we even predict what that reaction might be? I think it would be really difficult to predict, uh, regardless of, of how a person might feel about our current president. Uh, he, uh, he, one of the cons- one of the things he seems to consistently do is he acts in a way that he thinks is popular. And a lot of the times it is popular, uh, at least with certain groups of people. But um, um, and that's what it means to be a populist, you know. But uh, but sometimes he's he's wrong about that. Uh, he'll, he doesn't admit it, but he just sort of shifts and pretends like it sort of never happened when he got it wrong. Right. Uh, so I don't know that that's you know, that's a really that's a really interesting question, because, of course, he. He is, uh, you know, because you've got Bob Barr that you have to consider there, too, because right. he's our attorney general now. And, and he's a guy that uh, his entire career has advocated for a very sweeping, very strong executive branch of government. And uh, and so I think we would have to think more about how Bob Barr would would handle it than we would uh, President Trump. I think uh, I know President Trump likes to portray that. He's the man in charge and he makes all the decisions. But I think it's something like that. Uh, I think Barr might uh, really be point. Yeah, very well could be. I mean, that they would be. Well, let's let's just hope it doesn't happen. And, and let's hope right. that if it ever happens again, that 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 we have continued to learn how to handle these types of situations um, uh, from the government standpoint. Steve, anything else you'd like to add on Waco and, and, um, your experience there? Is there uh, more information or, or, um, uh, that you can refer us to or anything else you'd like to add? I think, uh, for those of your listeners who, uh, are on Facebook, I, I wish I had the exact name in front of me. I should have written it down, but I believe that Facebook page is, uh, it's, Waco, I think it's Waco Massacre Survivors or something like that. Okay. And people can find it and uh, and ask to be invited to it or whatever. But it's a, I I got to tell you, it's just uh, it's it's not only remarkable to watch negotiate like that negotiator and survivors on there answering questions, and these questions aren't always pleasant questions, right. you know. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, people are some are very critical in, in a lot of their questions, um, but then also too you have very young survivors that had come out prior to the fire, uh, the k- people that were kids at the time, 10, Just 11 children. years old, right. and they're on there and they're seeking answers of their own because uh, because their loved ones' lives were cut short, right. they didn't get the opportunity to get to know them. So they're there also uh, getting to know not only more details about what happened, you know, and combining that with their own memories, but also sort of getting to know the, their loved ones that were lost. It's, it's a really fascinating uh, a page to to follow it and participate in. That's great. That, that's great. Great to hear that there is some healing that that has taken place. Steve, I want to swap gears on you now. I want to get a little political here. Um, you're a Republican, a conservative Republican, right? Um, I'm. <laughs> the short answer is yes. The longer answer is I'm probably going to go ahead and pay some membership dues to the Libertarian Party and support Justin Amash in his uh, run for the Libertarian nomination for president. Mm-hmm. But I, yes, I have always thought myself as a, a conservative Republican or, or a very libertarian-minded Republican, but I have always thought of myself as a Republican until uh, we nominated Donald Trump. And then I, I just, uh, for the life of me, I can't understand how he could have gotten to be our, well, I do, I know the mechanics of it, but I'm just saying, 
uh, it's hard for me to take ownership of the Republican Party in the state that it's currently in. Right. You and a lot of other good Republicans that I know, what I would consider a traditional Republican, um, uh, have essentially left the party. What do you think of the Lincoln Project that's going on out there? And then let's talk about Justin Amash as well. Um, you know, uh, I the Lincoln Project guys, I've seen some of their stuff. I've seen some of their ads. It's, it's some pretty hard-hitting ads. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure of, I mean, last I checked, they actually endorsed Joe Biden, which, uh, which is fascinating. I don't yes. know that I've ever would have personally endorsed him, although I did encourage people in the state Senate race this last go around in our area to, uh, to back the Democrat, to vote for the Democrat rather than vote, uh, for Shane Reeves. Uh, but, um, it, but that was a different circumstance. Uh, uh, no offense, but even if she had won uh, that seat as a Democrat in the state Senate, she would have been one of, what, three in our state Senate? Yeah. So what what I was trying to not do many. was encourage people to vote strategically to send the message that, hey, we're not going to accept these kind of crooked candidates that are just buying placeholder seats to, to launch their future congressional campaign. Uh, and But yet at the same time, it wouldn't in any way affect the balance of the state senate so so that's a little bit different i don't think i would have endorsed biden but but i understand where they're coming from i mean i think biden's far less harmful to the country than than what trump has been and what will really be if he gets a second term so i get where they're coming from i just i'm not sure how effective they'll be i understand and you mentioned uh, justin amash who also left the republican party as a uh, member of the united states house of representatives in the middle of his term um due to um uh, getting away from the traditional values of republicans steve it's tough being a rhino right so, so here's what's fascinating about Justin Mosh, and really I consider myself uh, sort of a lower tier version of him in terms of our political ideologies are virtually identical. He's very much a libertarian Republican. He introduces himself, uh, or used to, as a libertarian Republican. In fact, that's how I adopted the phrase. I really like that, that he put the word libertarian first. Um, but to tell you how upside down the Republican Party is right now, particularly at the national level, um, you know, here's a guy that started uh, the Republican Freedom Caucus and in the House, and I mean, he was leading the charge for fiscal conservatism, and and I mean, he's just one of the top guys in the House of Republican uh, when it was Republican controlled, and uh, was even one of the names bannered about for Speaker of the House when uh, when Republicans were still control of the House. And then you get Trump come in, and now you have uh, Trumplicanism. It's not even Republicanism. Right. Um, and this guy has literally been shut out. He was kicked out of the Freedom Caucus that he helped to create. And yeah. so it's, it's not based on principles anymore or ideology. It's based on, you know, who you identify with. It's identity politics. And so he decided, hey, I'm going to be independent. So that's what he did for a while. And then uh, I don't know how long ago it was. He paid lifetime dues to the libertarian party and now he's trying to run for the libertarian nomination uh to be uh their presidential candidate um, yeah. and it's it's not going to be an easy battle no. Liber- okay yeah <laughs> tell me about that are an yeah. interesting bunch oh yeah oh yeah for sure <laughs> well I, i'll tell you from my perspective steven um you know just like ron paul i may not agree with everything justin amash or ron paul says but i respect their principles and the fact that they believe in what they're saying not because it's popular, but because they actually believe it's the right thing to do. And and I'll be honest with you, Justin Amash scares me to death uh, for Joe Biden and for Donald Trump's reelection, just to be quite honest with you, uh, because uh, Amash is very appealing to a lot of people, including uh, a guy that's considered somewhat liberal like me, even though I'm really fall in the middle but Amash has a lot of appeal and even when he left and became an independent that speech was just remarkable of what he talked about to his constituents and they accepted it right Steve they they said hey we're we're okay with you leaving the Republican Party yeah and uh, and you know here's a guy you got to remember he's he's six and oh on elections uh, yeah. he ran for a state house in Michigan and won and then he's won five consecutive. Uh, U.S. House term. So he's not, he knows how to win. And so, because I got to tell you, I just, I don't see the path to victory for him, even if he wins the Libertarian nomination, which is still very much in doubt. 
um, okay. just because of the way that system works. But uh, but yet he seems to see a path. Uh, it's going to be a very narrow path. Um, with regards to who he helps more, you know, I see both sides of it. But mm-hmm. I, I would say this because I hear Republicans say the same thing. They're like, hey, this guy scares us. We're afraid he's going to get Biden elected. Right. Right. And so. Right. But what I think is a very real scenario is even if he runs a moderately effective campaign, this assumes he gets the libertarian nomination. Even if he runs a moderately effective campaign, uh, he's liable to make a big difference in Michigan. Michigan is a battleground state. Yes. Trump won it by like about 10,000 votes uh, last time. And uh, I don't think there's any doubt that when you see how he's, how Trump has slipped in the polls and then you couple that with Amash as president, uh, for the uh, benefit of your listeners, Amash is a congressman from Michigan right. uh, and, a, and a known name in that state. Uh, so he could very easily uh, tip that in favor of Biden in Michigan. And, and Trump cannot win the whole thing without Michigan. Right. He has to have Michigan. Right. I think Biden can win without Michigan, but Trump cannot. And so uh, so I, that that's a very real possibility to me. So if I was making predictions, uh, my prediction would be that, that Amash would tip it in Biden's favor by virtue of, of – uh, helping Biden win Michigan. But having said all that, I would add one other thing. Okay. Monmouth just re- released a poll yesterday, the first poll where they used Justin Amash's name. Uh, and he's already polling at 5% in the Monmouth poll in right. a three-way race. Right. That's, that's pretty, rem- that caught me off guard. I was like that, you know what that tells me, Steve, that tells me that 5% of the American public doesn't care who the third guy is. They're going to vote for him right. no matter what, because you can't tell me that 5% of the American public knows who Congressman Justin Amash is from from Michigan. Right. There's no way. I, I wouldn't have put it over 1% that they know his name. So that tells me 5% are going to vote for the third guy no matter what. Yeah. That's a pretty good place to start if you're Justin Amash. It, it's, a, it's a nice floor to have, that's for sure, and a, and a really good place to start on something like that. And that, once again, that's what makes me really nervous about his campaign, not the things that he says, but just the simple fact that, obviously, I think it is a narrow path. Um, let's talk about what happens, what is the future of the GOP and the Republican Party without folks like you, without folks like Justin Amash? What happens to the GOP post, you know, post-Trump? I talk, I talk with friends about this stuff all the time, and I talk about the Democrat Party as well and the Libertarian Party because, you know, there's a huge, uh, I think it's fair to say there's a huge vacuum that's taking place with you know, all this upheaval in the Republican Party. And it saddened me here in Tennessee, and I'm not taking swipes. I'm just, I am, I'm being, a, this is my observation, okay? My honest observation. Sure. I think uh, the Democrat Party could, could have so easily been well positioned in Tennessee to sort of take advantage of this. But man, here statewide, they just, uh, they're improving. There's no question about it. But, uh, they seem to have plenty of problems of their own. So they haven't been able to capitalize on this weak moment for the Republican Party. And the Libertarian Party is, in my opinion, even though I'm about to pay dues and join it and give it one last shot, um, you know, I think they're probably in a lot of ways uh, is as sort of a messed up position as they've ever been. So they haven't been able to capitalize on they this. They can't feel the vacuum the either. Party. Yeah. So gotcha. it's kind of like everybody's in a mess all at once. Right. And, and where it goes post-Trump, I don't know. And we don't really know what, when post-Trump is going to happen. I, I've made the prediction that if Trump gets reelected, uh, I think he's going to discard evangelicals. Uh, I won't use the phrase I use, but <laughs> or, right, yeah. uh, among friends, but I think he's going to discard them like a used cigarette. But the way he discards everybody, he he uses everybody around him. And, uh, and to the extent that he sucks up to evangelicals right now, it's only because he feels like he needs their vote. But if he gets elected to a second term, he doesn't need their vote anymore. Right. He, he's going to. He's going to chuck them to the side and 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 uh, and, you know, it'd be sad to see it happen because so many of my friends are great evangelical people. But this is what happens when you when you hit your wagon to somebody like that. And uh, and I I think that day of reckoning will be will be coming if he gets a second term. If he doesn't, um, you know, I think maybe the Republican Party will start to mend sooner because they'll realize they don't have to pay homage to this guy. You don't have to kiss that ring to be a Republican. But right now, all it means to be a Republican, it, it, it doesn't mean 
it, there's no principle involved in being a Republican right now. Right. There's no standard. There's no platform. It's just uh, alignment with Trump. That's Fault, right. Yeah, fealty to Trump, not fealty to the Constitution or, or conservative or fiscally conservative principles. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I think you're right, Steve. I think you've hit the nail on the head on that. Let's talk about a couple of those uh, policies. Uh, for example, an area you and I agree on, that's fiscal responsibility. Um, we're $25, $26 trillion in debt uh, probably by the end of the year. Probably going to have a negative GDP for the first time in since the Great Depression. Um, Steve, are we in serious danger of a sovereign debt crisis in this country can i uh i think it's important for you and your listeners to know i am an eternal optimist right that's that is my default all right so i want to say that before i tell you the doom and gloom scenario in front of us yeah i just uh look i lived through 2008 as a builder and i saw what happened and i saw how bad it was and i don't know how any person in their right mind can't look at what's going on right now and think that it's a magnitude worse than what 2008 was. It's going to be, I think it's going to be delayed in when people start feeling it, Mm -hmm. but similar to like, if you finance something and you don't have to make payments for six months, but interest is still accruing. I think that's what's going on with, with what we're seeing right now. It's like, we're not going to have to make these painful payments in the next six months to a year, but that interest, that pain is still accruing. Right. And when I think it hits us, it's going to hit us at a magnitude far worse. Um, I think we're going to see a huge devaluation in the currency. Look, here's, I want to share this with you. You may not know this. Uh, you got to really get off in the weeds to know and be able to find what I'm talking about. But as part of care, the care package that was passed, okay, um, they sent uh, about 500 billion over to the treasury. The treasury sent about 500 billion over to, uh, or Congress sent about 500 billion over to the treasury. Right. And that allows the federal reserve because the way fractional reserve banking works to create almost $4 trillion in new money. Right. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what they're doing with that money for the first time ever in the federal reserve history, they are making loans out of that $4 trillion directly to corporations, huge corporations. Look, I'm no Bernie bro, but those guys have identified the problems very well. Yep. I strongly disagree with their solutions. Right. But to find myself going, wow, you know, this is this is Bernie Bro territory. And that's just that's being embraced and it and it's not being talked about. Steve Mnuchin, our Treasury Secretary, he's in charge of that four trillion dollar okay. checkbook. And we've got an IG who was fired, uh, who's so he's not overseeing it. Right. And we've got a Congressional Oversight Committee, a joint Congressional Oversight Committee, part part Senate, part House, that has yet to be seated because McConnell and Pelosi cannot agree on a chair for that committee. So you got Mnuchin and four trillion dollar checkbook with a with little to no oversight, and you got a president who says, "Ah, you got to be nice to me." You know, you governors, you need to be nice to me. Right. And so, how do you think that checkbook's going to go? You know, of course. So, uh, so I that scares me to death. And so you inject that kind of money into the economy. Uh, at the rate that they're doing it. And there's no question, hyperinflation, it's not a question of if, but when hyperinflation hits. Yeah, uh, and that's a really scary scary thought. thought. Yes, I mean, when you've got to wheel in a barrel of money to buy a loaf of bread, we're talking, you know, post-World War I Germany and all of the ugly things that came out of that. Um, is there a chance, Stephen? I hate to be so. I'm doing, you know, I'm optimistic too, right? I, I don't think that we necessarily fixed all the problems in 2007. We we did make the banks become liquid, you know, where they could actually, you know, that, that's <laughs> right. a great concept. Um, we did do some of that, uh, but I think really we just kicked the can down the road. I'll tell you when I freaked out in 07, uh, Steve, was when all of my customers' uh, credits uh, were frozen, even though they had good credit. But uh, everyone's revolving credit was frozen, literally shut businesses down or ran them out forever. Um, Steve, is there a chance that we could lose the World Reserve? Um, are you? From, I'm sure you're familiar with BRICS, with Brazil, Russia, China, um, their attempt. Um, you know, is there a possibility? I mean, the the U.S. dollar has not always been the world reserve currency. Is that that correct? That's I mean, cor- uh, that's right. correct. In yeah. in. Uh, yeah, I do think there's a chance we could lose it. You know, that there's been a push to get rid of that for a while around the globe. And then you 
you bring in the, the president we have now uh, who bullies his way around the globe. And that just makes us even more popular, more unpopular, more isolated. And it may sound good to a lot of people, right? Like I get it when people get a little fired up about, oh yeah, the French hate us. Uh, you know, that like that's almost a badge of honor. Uh, and I sort of get that. But at the same time, you know, if those people hate you enough that they may just switch reserve currencies just out of spite. Right, right. And then you add the, depending on how our State Department and our foreign policy is enacted, um, that could probably have a lot to do with their decision on that. I mean, if you look at just the COVID issue, you had the entire world outside of the United States and Russia get together and put $8 billion towards a vaccine, right? But we, we, we weren't part of that. Yeah. Uh, well, another more recent example, uh, you know, some people might chalk this up to conspiracy theory, but you know, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, uh, he was trying to get North African nations to go over to uh, buying and selling oil and gold bullion. Yeah. And I personally don't think I don't think it was coincidence that when we finally marched into Libya, it was, you know, within a month of them setting up their own central bank in North Africa. But, you know, I just that's exactly uh, that, right. It was a threat to the petrodollar. I, I have absolutely. some issues with uh, everything that happened in the Arab Spring. Uh, if we were involved there, you know, Benghazi was this great cry in 2016. Uh, about, you know, the terrible things that happened there, Steve. But no one has bothered explaining to me why an ambassador was at a consulate in that part of the country. What was he doing there, right? I mean, he was selling arms to these folks, basically. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, so here's where I really get astray with a lot of my Republican friends. They they love to blame all that on Hillary, and, and I certainly understand right. there's there's blame to go around. Yeah. But but here's another thing that happened, and you got to, again, this is another, one of those things where you got to go get off in the weeds and do some uh, critical thinking. But um, you had uh, you had a some uh, SEALs over there that were in a safe house right. uh, nearby. And uh, they were ordered to stand down to not go help at the embassy. And the reason why is they did not want to give away the location of that safe house. And that's what the whole attack on the embassy was. They knew that they that the hope for the attack was that these guys would come to the rescue and then that would give away that safe house so they could identify the safe house. Mm -hmm. And so those guys disobeyed orders and people think of them as being heroic. And I certainly understand that as somebody, I joke I wasn't in the military, but at least I was in the Air Force. It's kind of the same thing. (laughs) Uh, But but as somebody that, that went through that, I get that. I get that you know, wanting to go and, and, and defend your brothers and defend your country. Cause that is, that is, uh, you know, that is considered us soil. I understand that, but at the same time, when you're given a direct order to stand down, you disobey it. Uh, and then not only do you end up getting killed anyway, but you end up giving away that safe house and everything that was there in it, whether right. you think it should have been there or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I would necessarily consider that heroic. It, it was certainly, uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, heroic bravery. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but they disobeyed a direct order. Yeah. Yeah, it lacked discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, that's. Let's move on. We we touched on the petrodollar. Did you ever think that we would see a day where a barrel of oil was at zero or negative twenty seven? <laughs> Did you? I mean, what, what world? It's like this dystopic world. What what is going on? I mean, I understand the dynamics that the Saudis and the Russians decided to increase their production. What? Why did they wait until a global p- pandemic to do this, Steve? Any? You know, I, I haven't followed that as closely as I should have, but I just know for a long time, at least the Saudis, which, you know, Trump considers to be his best buddies, right. uh, which is another problem I have. But yep. they have tried real hard to ruin the shale uh, oil production here in the United States. That's and, what I think. Yeah. Uh, and oh, well, they've got like 12 or 14 tankers on their way to refineries in the U.S. right now. Uh, Saudi Arabian tankers. I was just reading the other day. And so, you know, they're not giving up on on trying to drive that out. Now, I will say this, though, and I'm not sure you've ever considered this. It seems like every time I bring this up, people don't they sort of they have to take some time, and let it breathe. They don't really think of it this way. 
if you are a person that believes that we have a finite amount of oil and and I, I my personal belief is we do there's different timelines on how long that is some right. is you know 300 years some is you know i've seen some as low as 120 years you know mm-hmm. but but if you believe there's a finite amount of oil then strategically the thing the wise choice for america is to buy up and use as much foreign oil as possible right now and not be using our own oil so that we're the last man standing if and when we do run out of oil. And that's how strategic people think of oil uses. So it's really easy to go, ah, we don't want to buy that Saudi Arabian oil. We want to buy American oil and get those American jobs. To me, that's short-sighted thinking. Uh, I get it. But I think it would be wiser long term to, man, keep buying that foreign oil and let's keep it cheap and, and yeah, <laughs> use well, it up well, as much as that. possible before we use ours. Right. But you would have to disrupt the entire global market in order to make that happen, right? I mean, Exxon's not just going to just lay down and give up their oil field, or their fields in Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, that's just right. not going to happen. So, um, our, okay, Steve, enough on that. I want to move to one more thing. Recently, Senator, uh, Senator Marsha Black. Blackburn from here in Tennessee, is uh, trying to pass a bill right now through the House where American citizens can sue the country of China over uh, the COVID virus. Steve, do these folks want a hot war with China? No, she's not trying to pass that bill. She's trying to raise money for her reelection campaign, and that's how you do it. I mean, in her case, because uh, you sure can't do it. You sure don't have much else to do with. So it's a, it's a populist move. She knows it'll never pass. It, it and even if it ever passed, she knows it would. China's never going to submit themselves to that. And, right. And I, I don't think China takes it serious. Certainly not anything to go to war over. To me, it's a it's a cheap fundraising tactic and gotcha. shame on the people who fall for it. That's the way I feel about it. Yeah. I know that's harsh, but, but no, thank uh, you so a little, much. little jaded having gone through some races in my life. No, well, no, I understand. And, you know, as much as we may dislike um, some of the methods or uh, that, that China's using, uh, some of the way that they uh, you know, apply foreign policy around the world or to us or even in internal policy, domestic policy that we may have a problem with. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to start a hot war with China and trade wars and cold wars lead to hot wars. Um, anyway, Steve, do you think if, if, if the Chinese get enough of this and they just say, you know what, we're just going to take Taiwan tomorrow because they've been threatening to do that for the last 50 years. Uh, if they decide to do that, does that start a hot war with China, do you think? It's hard to say. Um, uh, you know, I used to think that Trump was a hothead, uh, but I, as I've watched him more, he's actually a weenie. I think he's uh, afraid he of him. Por- yeah, I he agree. He likes to portray himself mm-hmm. as this, uh, you know, dictator-like, strong, powerful guy, but that's play acting. I mean, if you think right. about every major sort of thing he's been faced with, he always ends up backing down. He yes. talks a big game. And then he backs down. It's it's theatrics for him. It's all reality television. It, it and is. And so yeah. I would I would like to think that he would stay true to form, and right. you know not do anything really retaliatory in that instance. But I would hope we wouldn't get to that point. You know I think China has a very real understanding, and the adults that are still left in this administration have a very real understanding that. We're in the same boat, China yes. and, and the United States. We may not like a lot of that stuff, but we recognize that we, we really need each other in a – it's sort of a weird codependent relationship, it's, right? Well, it's the two largest and, uh, economies in the world, right? Yeah, and they hold so much of our debt, and you know they don't want to see our economy collapse, and we don't want to see their economy collapse. And yet both our economies are, are being crushed right now. You know, There's right. a lot of blame. The Trump administration is trying real hard to blame – China for what's going on, and they've had a lot of bad things that you know that they probably should have done better with regard to the to the COVID nineteen. But but having said that, uh, they're certainly not doing it on purpose because this has crashed their economy horribly in the same way it's crashing ours. And you have to understand this. That's what you hold up to the world that communism is great because they've had what like eight percent growth, right. although incredible some of it's growth. Phony. Yep. Yeah, for like whatever it is, decade, decade and a half. And and so now, you know, that's that's very much at risk for them. And so that's more to them than just their economy. That's their whole propaganda arm that's falling apart. So the idea that they would put 
their economy at that kind of risk and their entire propaganda arm at risk. I mean, that's their very being. The idea that they would do that to like retaliate against Trump in a trade war. What a joke. You know, they, right. they just they don't think about Trump that way. They like him. They feel like he's somebody he's that they can take advantage yes, of. Yes, easily manipulated, uh, easy to be manipulated, I think, absolutely. I mean, oh my gosh, Steve, we, we fired uh, Tomahawk missiles at an empty airfield in Syria and called them before <laughs> we were firing this, the yeah. missiles. I <laughs> mean, yeah, and so, but, that, but you see how the media and how social media plays in this, because you'd have thought that, you know, it was Trump out there himself firing bullets, fighting for America, but... It was a joke to it anybody was. that actually took the time to, to read and really pay attention to what was going on. Absolutely theatric. Steve, uh, we're out of time. Anything else you'd like to add? It's been a great interview. I really appreciate your perspective on things. Uh, what else would no, you like I, to tell I, the folks here? I appreciate being on. Uh, just, uh, you know, uh, I hope that uh, I, I would add one thing, you know, since we talked about COVID-19 a little bit, I, I'm, again, a unique individual in that uh, – it's very, very deadly and far worse than, than flu, but also recognize, and this is where you and I might disagree on a different show, that I don't think you have to have mandatory, you know, uh, economic lockdowns and things like that to deal with it. I think, uh, uh, interestingly, I have a lot, as jaded as I am sometimes, I do have a lot of faith in humanity when, especially Americans, when the chips are down. And I think uh, Tennesseans sort of lead the way in that. That's why we're the volunteer state, you know. And so I think if uh, if given the opportunity, the people of the state of Tennessee would step up and lead without being forced to. And so uh, I, I would hope that as things reopen, uh, that Tennesseans show that I'm right in that, that they're that they're going to take this virus, continue to take this virus seriously as they get out and and in public and and make sure that they take necessary precautions and keep it from getting hold of us again absolutely steve i mean uh i couldn't agree with you more on that point we have to uh to to follow the guidelines and um uh and and obviously we're going to have to put our nose to the grindstone to get through this economic mess that we're we're into now so steve lane everyone steve thank you for joining the man in the middle podcast i'm stephen reynolds and we'll be right back Thanks again, Steve, for that great interview. Uh, really educated me on a lot of things. You know, folks, uh, we, uh, Steve Lane and I came from two different sides. We look at the world a little bit differently on how we should approach things. But as you noticed, we just set another great example of how two people with some different opinions can come together and have a civil conversation. We need more of that in this world, folks, especially folks that are facing the economic pressure, fear for the safety of our families. Uh, for everything that's happening in the world today. We need a lot more understanding and a lot more civic conversation out there and be mindful and respectful of people with different opinions. Thanks for joining us again this week. I'm Stephen Reynolds. I'll see you next week.